Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is the writer Tej Turner. Tej is a fantastic fantasy author. His debut novel, The Janice Cycle, was published in 2015, and two years later, he followed it up with Denusos Rises, which I think was the point where people started to take notice and realise he's actually consistently good. For the last few years, Tej has been working on a new epic fantasy series called Avatars of Ruin. Two books in the series are already published, Bloodsworn and Blood Legacy, and this interview took place in February 2022, just three weeks before Blood Legacy was released in paperback. Right, let's play the jingle and get on to the interview. Hello, and uh, this week I'm very pleased to say my uh, guest is Tej Turner. Tej, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. My first question to you is, as always, what are we drinking? Okay, so before I answer this, I think I should establish that it is the evening. So I am drinking uh, red wine. It's a Tempranillo from Spain, Finca de Costancia, and it's an organic moon wine, apparently. Very nice. And yourself? Uh, Yes, I mispronounce it all the time. I always say Tempranillo. But uh, how, how do you pronounce it? Tempranillo. When it's two L's, uh, yes. it's, uh, it's pronounced like a Y. Yeah. <laughs> but it is one of my favourite grape variants. But, you know, just being a heathen with wine, it's just an Englishman <laughs> thing to do. It's like, oh, I just see it and pronounce it exactly as I, I see it, um, uh, ignoring I all the culture and the language barrier. <laughs> well, I've got a bit of an advantage because I speak Spanish as well. So. You are very the, well um... travelled, and we will come on to that, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, most times that I've met you, Tej, you have red wine in your hand, so <laughs> it's, it is something that I associate with you. But I want to know, is it something that you drink whilst writing, or is it more just a social occasion drink for you? Uh, no, no. Um, I, so I've, I think that my convention friends think that I'm an alcoholic or something, because I don't know, I have a bit of social anxiety. And so when I'm in big groups, I just need to drink to take the edge off a bit. Yeah. So yeah, so the convention crowd and all the writers and everyone I know probably think that I am just a complete mess all the time. Uh, but no, when, I, when I'm at home and I'm writing, I, I, I drink lots of green tea. And, oh, very nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is, this is uh, social juice. Just yeah, uh, yeah, get, yeah, gets you through yeah. talking to people. Okay, well, that's cool. That's cool. And yes, if, if you see Tej with a glass of wine, just reassure him that everything's okay Um, (laughs) and where I'm speaking to you now is this where you write is this your writing spot Uh, so this is where I write most of the time this is my study um, which also doubles up as my dining room and library and yes I've got a desk here in the corner I'll give you a a little tour actually because this will probably answer one of your like upcoming questions but i'll give a, okay, a visual notes yes. as well so i've got a big whiteboard with lots of notes on it there is a very large board. and then on the wall in front of me there's a map of the world i recognize that, I'm that map. in yeah yep and lots of world building notes and stuff wow. just all over the wall okay so for our listeners i'm going to describe what i see there when he says there's a large whiteboard it is a huge large uh, whiteboard i would say that's probably at least a meter wide by meter and a half tall would that be accurate yeah probably about, about that. that yeah yeah and it's in portrait not landscape and uh, there's a lot of a4 printed out uh, notes at the bottom and the title of your next book at the top, I believe, is that yes. correct? Are, are we are we allowed Blood War? Yes, okay, that's official. That's been announced. I can say that. Yeah. And then in front of you are sheets of A4 stuck up on the wall, which yes. are sort of historical background to the. Is it like world so building? I've got the map of the world. I've got like um, a family tree of the pantheon mm-hmm. of the, the gods and goddesses in their religion. And then I've got like, um, it's three sheets long, but like a glossary. And that's just like terms that I have in my, because I have like my own slang mm. in my world. And then I'm introducing a new culture that the characters venture to that they haven't been to in the previous two books. So I've got quite a lot of notes okay. concerning that the calendar, and then some notes about the magic system. Okay. Um, So so that kind of like leads me on to a very easy first question. It says, do you enjoy world building? (laughs) 
yes, I definitely <laughs> do enjoy world building. <laughs> and yes, I guess for a lot of people I've spoken to, they try and keep a lot of it in their head, but you find it far more useful to have a very strict code set out early on so it's consistent yes in terms of the world building i do but with the narrative i don't always plan it out very thoroughly it's yeah like with the world building i tend to i always have a good sense of a big scope of the world the first thing that i always do is is draw a map and i write their history the different cultures the way they interact with each other and I ha- always have a good sense of that as, as in, in terms of the meta-narrative, but I'm not one of those authors who will be able to have a list of dates in chronological mm. order about certain things that have happened. Like, if I need to create a certain date for something, I will write it down and make sure that I keep it so that I don't make any consistency yeah. errors <laughs> later down the line. And so with the Avatars of Ruin is the series yes. that you're writing. So when yes. you first thought of the... The concept it was very much the world that's what came first rather than the characters that lived within it i think the way i started with this series is so it was my first venture into epic fantasy they weren't my first novels i had published but they were my first venture into epic fantasy which was my favorite genre when i was growing up and what i wanted to do was combine elements from other things that i liked with the fantasy as well mm-hmm. And I grew up watching a lot of anime during the 90s, you know, and a lot of those, they had heroes and villains who could, I don't know, like they could summon another form, like an armoured being, or they could pilot a mecha. Or another thing a lot of them had were like weird mutant creatures. Mm. And I wanted to find a way to plant those sort of things into a medieval epic fantasy world. (laughs) Yeah, so it's because it's not explicitly like cross genre. It's just putting those things of mechanization and experimentation, but it's experimentation through magic rather than technology, which I really like. And so, was it specifically just anime that was uh, a key influence that you wanted to introduce to epic fantasy? Yeah, it was. It was. I made, I created a magic system where people could be experimented on through ritual. And that ended up creating like weird humanoid mutant beings, but also characters who could transform. But it wasn't like they were piloting a mecha. It was like they were fused to magical artifacts that helped them summon a god, uh, like the the avatar of God. That's why the series is called The Avatars of Bruin. But yeah, another genre that I wanted to insert into there was a lot of the sci-fi horror crossovers things like the 90s film the faculty yeah or more modernly the walking dead where you have an ensemble because uh, i know like with a lot of zombie things it's not really the zombies that interest me as much as people who typically wouldn't choose to be in each other's company are forced to band together to survive and mm. they might be people who in our current modern society would have been part of different tribes who hate each other but suddenly they realize that like that's just meaningless when their lives are in danger and Mm. they've actually got more in common than they think yeah and I wanted to capture that kind of atmosphere as well and then I also realized well I've got ritual experimentation going on that's allowed me to create you know some of the characters to be experimented on and escape these powers but I can also um, use that to have themes of contagion which I guess is quite topical (laughs) quite relevant (laughs) at the moment (laughs) and so when you're coming up with these ideas are you writing them in a a document on on your computer are you writing them uh, freehand to use index cards how does it Um, first formulate what you want to include and what you don't so I typically I have a word document for each aspect about the world I'll have a word document about this culture's history about this culture's history and then like a a broader document about the combined histories of them all and i'll have a document about their calendar their religion stuff like that and i will build up i'll I'll, before i do any writing at all i'll build up a base 
of, of that. But as I'm writing, I will often have strokes of inspiration. Like maybe mm-hmm. I will, as I'm writing, I'll foreshadow something that will have consequences later on down the line. Or I will sort of like add another detail to the world. And when that happens, I will grab a post-it note and mm. I will add it to this whiteboard. I mean, when I just showed you what it looked like now, yeah. there wasn't any on there. Yeah. And that's because what I do is every now and then, sometimes it's just full of post-it notes, <laughs> but I'll just take them all off there and mm. I'll go through them all and I will add them to the correct Word documents yeah. for each aspect of the world. So you said earlier that you really start mapping things out before you start writing the main manuscript yeah. of the book. With Avatars of Ruin, obviously you're working on your third book now. What was the the world building before book one? How long was that process? I honestly couldn't tell you because I had a very primitive idea of this story and some of the characters when I was 15, I think. And I wrote a, a very probably awful like first four chapters of it back then that I pray to the gods will never <laughs> resurface somewhere. I, I put yeah. it side for a while and then I approached it from a, a different angle and I I was like right I'm an adult now I'm taking this seriously I already had the characters in place the characters are similar to, to what it was then but I focused a lot more on the world building but yeah what, what one one thing that I do with my world building which is it's not completely unheard of I'm not going to say that I'm the first one because I can think of dozens of others who have I, I do think about my world worlds in an astronomical sense okay as well as in terms of their geography and history so for example the avatars of ruin series I know that their world is a bit smaller than ours okay so they they have three moons as well yeah, yeah, they have three moons. Yep, yeah, yeah. And that has consequences for the way that they live. Because uh, when I, I, I once showed my map to my friend who's a geography teacher, and the first thing he said was just like, oh, this bit here, this bit's crucial to everything. If something happens to that place, everything is fucked. And I was just like, <laughs> welcome to book three, my friend. The second thing he said was, why don't you have any settlements on the coasts? And I was like, well... <laughs> mm. They, like they, you don't really want to be on the coast in this yeah. world because it's just yeah just not a safe place to be <laughs> no, that, that's good that this you've got that kind of setup one of the things i did want to i'll, I'll ask it now i was going to ask it later mm. but obviously it is a series and it's not a mm. trilogy did you start with book one with a rough idea of how many books it's going to be so I do know how many books it's going to be, but me and Elsewhere Press have made a conscious decision to not disclose that okay. yet. And, and it's because I think that readers form expectations about the way certain books are going to pan out, depending mm-hmm. on how many books the series yes. is going to be. If, for example, you have a big, massive battle in book three, everyone's going to be reading it, expecting it to all be like tied up with a nice neat rope at the end and etc etc you know and I don't want that for (laughs) (laughs) but no I I did I'll be honest about one thing when I did start it I did think it was going to be a trilogy but then when I was writing the second book Blood Legacy I realized that it was about 140,000 words long and I was only halfway through and (laughs) so I was like oh okay uh, maybe it's not a trilogy (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good that you have got an endpoint in mind. And I think it's also a good idea to keep it under wraps because I think when it's longer than a trilogy, sometimes Mm. you you will have some readers go, I'll wait till it's all out and then I'll read it. And then, of course, that has problems because the individual books then aren't selling well because the audience is waiting for it to fill um, back. And then they get annoyed when it gets cancelled before the you know sort of runs finished. Yeah. And so like if you bought the books instead of waited, then they would have been continued. I, I I know. I mean, I don't know them very well, but I know of some authors that that's happened to. Um, mm. It seems to be a, a problem. I mean, um, like I'm published with an independent press, and one of the advantages of that is because they're not as profit driven. 
mm. um, as the big publishers. So they, Elsewhere Press, who, who published both of my current series, they've never done that to any of their authors, basically. Because they, um, they, they, they said that to me um, when I first started getting published with them. They said, we, we know we've had books come out and they haven't had a big audience originally, but sometimes books find audiences mm. later down the line. But I, I will say one thing. My series is, I'll, I'll just say it's longer than three, but it's not going to go anywhere near Wheel of Time uh, <laughs> yeah. length. Or no. <laughs> no, that's great. I, yeah, I think just the individual books and the characters are so compelling that mm. it's worth reading as you go. Mm. Um, now, you've sort of said you know, what you like, you know, sort of with the world building and mapping all of that out. Are there any bits of the initial development that you find challenging that you don't look forward to that are a real struggle uh, to be honest no like as a writer there's certain things that come very naturally to me and to be honest world building and the and plotting are, are those things I think my only um, weakness in my world building sometimes is what I mentioned earlier that I, I, ha I have a, a good sense of the broad history of my world but I don't have a massive detailed one but I do create details if I need them and I and when that happens, I just always make sure that I record it somewhere so I don't do any continuity errors. When it comes to the plot, do you have any form of outline that you have written down? How do you plot out? Uh, well, how, how do you outline the plot? I, so I, I am a planner. So I, I'm definitely a planner for my epic fantasy. I am most certainly not a planner when it comes to a couple of the other novels that I wrote, but I've, I'll talk about them later so we don't okay, get yeah. too much older. So... When I first imagined this series, it was very character driven. And I've always had certain moments that I've wanted each character to reach. I've always had certain interactions that I've wanted all the characters to have with each other and certain evolutions to their relationships to explore. So that's always been there. And I know the, the, the big meta narrative of how each book is going to go but I don't plan every bit in detail. So when I start a novel, I've got an, a broad idea of, of the way it's going to go and, and certain beats that it's going to hit. I know how it's going to end and I know how we, it, the journey that each character is going to make. But with the more detailed plotting, I do that in stages okay. and it's usually about four to five chapters at a time. So what, once I've reached the end of that section, I will then stop you know, writing the actual thing for a couple of days and, and go into planning mode again. And when I do this, I do a step-by-step -step plan for each chapter. That's what you actually saw on my big whiteboard okay, yeah. earlier that I showed you. So I've got yeah. three chapters currently pinned up on there, the ones that I'm working on right now. And in these plans I have, you'll have in big letters which character's going to narrate each part of, of each sub-chapter because I... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, people who read my books know that I have, I tend to have a lot of point of view characters. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I know when it's going to shift between the characters and the topics of their conversations and the events. And, and I know what sort of things are going to be said, things that are going to happen that are going to advance the greater narrative. And the reason why I do this more detailed planning nearer to the time is because, first of all, I want it to be fresh in my mind. Because if I do the whole thing... By the time I'm getting to the end, it, it would have been like months since I'd written down that plan. And and plus, I'd, sometimes, like even if I have a plan, I'll just end up changing things or adding stuff. Mm. And I think that's because, particularly with the Avatars of Ruin series, it's very character driven. And sometimes the characters just take over the story. Like, <laughs> like, 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 like I, I will have, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll intend for X to happen. Uh, but then when I get to writing it, like the character will do something else and then I'll be like, oh yeah, actually that does make sense. That character wouldn't do that. I was just writing yeah. that because it was convenient for the plot. Or another thing that occasionally happens is I'll start writing a scene and it will have a different energy to mm -hmm. what I originally intended for it. And when this happens, I don't usually fight it. Sometimes if it's got a different energy, a certain beat that I wanted to hit during that scene won't be reached. So I have to think about a way to have that beat at a later time in the book. Or I'll introduce a beat that I hadn't originally intended to do and that will have 
consequences later in the book so right. yeah that, that's why i do the, the more detailed planning in stages yeah no that makes sense that's a good idea and so once you've mapped out uh the beats uh for the first cu- couple of chapters and you've got the world is it difficult to actually start writing the story itself because some people they love the world building and then the actual yeah, sort of so and so said mm. this and then did that is a chore. Why well, some people love it and it just flows out of them. Do you find it's an easy flow or do you find it's a bit of a graft? For me, the most grafting part of my writing personally, because we're all different, yeah. you have some writers who get you know their first draft is similar to what ends up being printed and those people dazzle me because (laughs) my first drafts are usually a bit of a challenge for me like one of my worst nightmares is the idea of somebody finding my first drafts and seeing how awful they are (laughs) um, and realizing that I am a fraud once I've actually got the first draft down that's when I actually start to enjoy it more because for me that's when I start to look at it and think oh this is actually quite good and you know, the prose starts to sing and I I, I I much prefer editing to getting the first draft down mm. if I'm honest the first draft is definitely the hardest point for me as a writer. And with that do you find word counts helpful or are they just evil and just a horrible reminder that you're behind where you want to be well so 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 for me like I I work a a day job as well Mm -hmm. four days a week I mean on on a day that I'm I'm working I get up at half past six I do an hour before I go to work and then I try to do an hour in the evening if I've still got the energy yeah doesn't always work out Um, and then if I've got the day off I will do like three hours in the morning and two hours in the evening for me like having a a daily word count just doesn't make sense with that because Mm. I've got such a vast difference in different days that I write the only rule that I try to impose upon myself is I try to write every day Mm. even if I have a really busy one and I'm tired I'll just try and do a few minutes The, the reason for that isn't necessarily just to get some words down but more because like when I'm writing a book my my subconscious is so absorbed by it that I need to go into it at least once a day Mm. because I find that if I have a day off it'll take me a day or two to get back into that world again yeah if I if it is a day that I have off where I'm not working if I do 2,000 words I'll be like okay yeah that's fairly decent but at the same time, I if I don't reach that 2,000 words, I don't beat myself up over it because, you know, like it's it's all relative anyway because, you know, if you're writing a dialogue scene, 2,000 words, you can churn that out quite quickly if yeah. it's between two characters who have quite good chemistry and, you know, but if you're writing a fight scene, you know, it can take longer, which certainly yeah. does for me. And I find it interesting that you said there that on days that you're working and on days off, you'll write both in the morning and the evening that you have two separate writing sessions. A lot of people I know, or a lot of people I've interviewed, tend to have that one section uh, of the day that they dedicate to writing, either in the morning or the evening. Do you find that there's a different energy or that you focus on different things uh, depending on the time of day it is? I find I personally do my best writing in the morning and because my day job can sometimes be quite physically demanding. So I can sometimes come back from it quite tired. I usually come home and I have a break for like an hour or two. And then I do some, if I've have a, had a day where I feel particularly tired and I'm too tired to write anything that's first draft, I'll do editing. And on your days off, you, you still like write in the mornings and the evening. Is that uh, the same yeah. as a you know, creative output, kind of first drafty in the morning and then revision in the evening. There's a few hours um, break. I guess I'll try to do more first drafts on if it's my days off because for me, like the first drafts are the most exhausting for mm. me. So I'll, I always, that's, that, that's the main grunt work. So I, I make it sound yeah. like I hate it when I say grunt work. It is work, <laughs> you know, and I think, yeah, yeah. that's the thing that I, I'm always trying to sort of, get the audience to understand as fun as the world building can be and the, the story creation and the, the the privilege of being able to tell your stories and get them out there. If it wasn't work, everyone would be doing it. So yeah, yeah, a, exactly. a lot of people do abandon 
it, it when they realize how much work you've got to put in but no that's useful to know just you know sort of how you want to put those extra hours in you might have a bit in the morning but you're still like i can do a bit more today and just that yeah. extra that extra <laughs> bit that you put in on a day i i think is great and obviously like you said you know right at the start this sort of dining room library workspace in the corner do you need complete silence do you find you have like theme music soundtrack music some people work in coffee shops and they're just like white noise chatter around them what kind of environment do you like to work in so if i'm in my study it'll sometimes be silence but i live in a city so sometimes it's not silence is not silence i i I put on music sometimes but i won't put it on too loud and it will be certain kinds of music like classical or ambient or if it has vocals it has to be not like vocal like some musician singing glossolalia where you don't yes. know what they're actually singing it's yeah, like that, Rose. so yeah yeah like it's if, if it's too much if it's too vocally it, yeah. it, it, it'll be distracting and you mentioned obviously how the first draft the killer for you it's just actually yeah. getting that out it's the real challenge is that the moment where you feel imposter syndrome the strongest or does that come in the edit? Because obviously you mentioned that you do feel it and what stage of, of the writing process do you find it, it starts kicking in? I, I don't really get imposter syndrome that much these days because it's so competitive getting published. Mm. So getting published is quite validating in itself. And then when you're getting pretty much mostly good reviews you're obviously doing something right but yeah, I do have that slight like thing of oh what if somebody finds my first drafts because yeah. yeah my my first drafts are really bad <laughs> they are in my head at least yeah the, the, the only other times I sometimes get imposter syndrome is like if I'm at like an event or something and I don't know it's a, a panel of people and everyone else is a bit more established than mm. me there'll be like a little voice in my head that people in the audience be thinking like who's this dude like it's a small one (laughs) do you get a point in the the writing process where you go i've made a mistake this story's trash because that's something i've found writers sort of get to a moment where the project that you're working on you suddenly have this critical self-doubt have you ever had that and how did you combat it I think I had that early in my stages of being a writer, like uh, when I was pre-published and when I first started getting published. But I, I'm not sure if I remember how I combated it. I just, I had little slumps, but I think I got, I obviously got over them because I'm where I am now. Yeah. And, and I think, because at the moment I'm sort of like three books into a series. So I already know, like I already have a publisher lined up. So yeah. I know that as long as it's not completely awful, it's... <laughs> I guess so, because I guess you've discussed with them where the story's going and they kind of have a, they know what's happening book to book, roughly. So you've had that validation that they've signed off on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, so going on to rewrites, do you, as soon as you finish the first draft, do you need to lock it away for a while before returning to it? Or is it like end, go back to page one <laughs> and, and start rereading it again? Or because you edit on the flyer, you said you, you write in the mornings and sometimes you yeah. edit in, in the evenings. Is there a lot of rewriting along the way that once you have got a finished draft, yeah, it, you know where you need to work and where you don't? Okay, I'll, so I'll tell you, I, I, I have... I have a process. I've, I've told people about this process before. Some people are like, ooh, some people are like, what? When I <laughs> explain it to them. But this is my process. So... I write the first draft and usually that's the hardest part for me. And then what I do is when I finish the first draft, I print it off. Okay. And then I get a big red pen and I go through the first draft and I am very brutal to myself in this stage. I'll like scribble out whole lines. I'll rearrange paragraphs and write loads of comments in the margin about how bad it is. And then what I do is then I then... I will open up a new Word document and I will write the second draft be written from scratch, but using that printout that I've done notes on as a, a basis. Yeah. And then 
it, it doesn't strictly work out this, but you know how I mentioned earlier that sometimes say, if I'm having a busy week at work, I'll be a bit tired in the evening and I find yeah. it hard to do first drafts or I'll reach like a stumbling block in a certain part of a story. Typically, when I'm first drafting chapter two, I'm second drafting chapter one. Right. When I'm first draft, drafting chapter three, I'm second drafting chapter two, mm. et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't always work out exactly that way. Like if I'm churning out the first drafts quite well, I might you know, do about three or four of them before I start second drafting them. But it's just so I've always got something that I can go to if I'm at a point where I'm stumbling a bit, not stumbling, but like I'm not quite sure like how to do a certain part of it. And I'll be like, okay, I'll just redraft the chapter before. So once the second draft is done, it goes on to another file, which is where the whole novel is going to be compiled on. And then once I've got the whole manuscript together, the first time it's the whole manuscript is together, it's all second drafted. Mm. I will usually do a third draft straight away, which is when I just go through the whole thing as one piece. And then that's the point where I will then just keep it in the folder and and I'll start a new book or something. And then I won't do the fourth draft until at least a few months have passed so that okay. I can look at it with fresh eyes. Yeah. So the first to second, you print off and you have this uh, tangible copy, but the second to third, it's all on the computer. Yeah, not, it's all on print. screen. Yeah. I think okay. there have been a, a couple of occasions where I'm going through the whole novel and there'll be like a scene where it's oh actually this seems a bit rough like I'll yeah. print that out and I'll do that whole process again where I like because I, I find like looking at a printout of it and being able to write on it that helps me sort of like yeah. be more thorough in the um to be honest I think I did that when I first started as a writer but I'm getting a bit more polished as I go along and I'm I don't think I had to do that for the last two novels I had published oh, there's more confidence in your writing and I think you you learn what mistakes you used to make and you just avoid them instinctively. Yeah, I, I think also like the, the first novel that you write, you're learning how to write a novel. Like whenever I have friends um, who tell me that they want to get into writing, one of the first things I say to them is just when you finish your first book, you're probably going to think it's more ready than it actually is. Lock it away, <laughs> um, redraft it, and then lock it away again and redraft it, and then lock it away. Like, yeah. So after you know, four, maybe you know, five or six uh, drafts that you've done that process with, do you have uh, beta readers or does it go straight to an editor? Who's the first person beyond you that gets to uh, read the book that you'll uh, want feedback mm. from? There's been a few people I've had beta reader relationships with, like on the occasional basis but mm -hmm. I do have one beta reader who's been with me since from the very beginning we went to university together and everything that I've ever written he's read and everything he's written I've read and it's quite interesting actually because we're very different writers he, he doesn't read much science fiction or fantasy he's more into his literary stuff so yeah we um do help each other out but because we're very different writers, sometimes we both filter through like what is each other's opinion, because anything your beta reader tells you, you know, it's all subjective. It's good to have uh, the opinion of somebody else. You don't have to take every piece of advice they give you. And with, I guess, him being a writer as well, there's certain crafting techniques that he understands the process, which I think can be quite beneficial, certainly from other authors that I've spoken to. If it's just a reader that loves reading books but doesn't understand the technical mechanisms of you know, how it's crafted, it can be yeah. quite hard for them to articulate what needs work or how to fix it. They just go, I got bored or I don't like that character without, <laughs> without understanding whether that character is a device for something yeah, it was sort of grander in the story. And with editors, so you're working on the third book of yes. uh, your series. Is it the same editor that you've had through the series? And have you worked with them before? Or is this the series that the first time that you've worked with them? Elsewhere Press have uh, a team of editors, but they usually assign me the same one for the structural edit anyway, which is like the first one or two rounds, depending on how many the book needs. They usually get one of them to work with. And yeah, we, we work together quite well. 
And in your opinion, what makes a good editor? What, what do you like about the editing process? So the first time I got edited, I, I just remembered I did have a different editor for my first book. And it was a bit daunting that first time that you get that word file back with all the tracks changes and with all these red lines. And my publisher basically had to explain to me that I didn't understand how a comma worked. But I I agree with with in terms of the grammatical things and stuff like that. I agree with most of the things they say these days. I don't challenge things very often. I did it a bit more with my first two novels because my Mm. first two novels, they were a bit more literary. So the style of the writing was one where I would sometimes go to the editor, okay, well, you know, that comma isn't necessary, but it's there because I want to have the sentence to have a certain rhythm. But with my epic fantasy, the, the style of the writing that I adopt for that is, is more, well, I wouldn't say transparent because that makes it sound plain, but it, like uh, when I'm writing epic fantasy, I write in a way that I hope the reader can just mostly get lost Mm. in the story rather than be distracted by the flowery prose of it and (laughs) yeah that's cool and once it's gone through the editing process do you have a well actually maybe even before it goes into the editing process do you have a a set process for once you've finished a book once the book's in your opinion done I know that's just before it goes off to the editors or once all the editors done do you have a celebration like process or is it just like great on to the next book great on to the next book now (laughs) I I mean that there there is still a certain amount of magic when you get to hold that book that you've Mm. worked on so much for the first time but sometimes by the time like it's actually printed you've gone through that manuscript so many times that Mm. a part of you like um no I just realized I didn't actually answer the full question that they asked me a minute ago I, I think a good editor is somebody who it needs to be somebody who's into the genre and what you're writing, because I think when they are like that, they're, they're not just watching out for grammar and the style of the sentences and stuff. They'll be actually engaged with the story. So they'll be more likely to notice if they find like a continuity error or that you've used the wrong name because you made a typo or something like that. And I think that it's also good to have one with patience because I think quite a lot of writers are neurotic people. I know that I am. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, what what was the last question you just asked? Because I was just answering the the one before. I asked, do you have a process once you've actually finished the book? Yeah, is there any kind of like celebration or is it just going on to that? Uh, What I did want to ask next, which actually feeds into that really, is how comfortable are you in promoting your own work? Do you find talking about a past project that in your mind you edited to death and it's gone? (laughs) And now you're you're knee deep, you know, so, so... for context with uh, listeners, as we're doing this interview, the uh, ebook for Blood Legacy has been released. Yeah. The paperback has not, so yeah. it's in it's a middle uh, liminal ground of promotion of book two. But as all your uh, paperwork on the wall and on your whiteboard shows, <laughs> you're in the middle of book three. So, how is it revisiting book two? Is is that easy for you, or is that quite a challenge? It's fairly easy for me because I, I've got I've got one advantage in that I'm still working in the same world, mm. so it's still the same characters, the ones I haven't killed. Yeah, and I think the the time frame of how things work is a bit different with indie presses too. We were still editing Blood Legacy about I think it was. I think it was like a month before it, it came out, like we did the last sort of copy edit. So, so while I've been writing book three, there's been some stops while I've been going through yeah. different edits for it. The, the only time I it's ever been a bit confusing because I, I wrote the first book of another series that I've, I've laid the foundations for last year. And I leapt into finishing off Blood Legacy because I it's a weird story. I started Blood Legacy. Yeah got about halfway through and then I didn't have a publisher for it and I went away for a year abroad and then I came back and I was like I've got an idea for a new story so I'll start writing that um, because I don't have a publisher for Bloodsworn yet there's no point right finishing the sequel and then I got a publisher for Bloodsworn just as I was finishing the other book that I started the fresh one and then my publisher found when they were during the first edits of Blood Legacy that I'd done some typos where I'd used character names from the other book that I was working on. <laughs> <laughs> in a completely different world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, 
If, if it's the same world, but a, but a different book, I don't find it jarring at all. Mm. But when I'm going between different worlds, that's something yeah. that, that takes my brain like several months to, to get my head around sometimes. Yeah. And another thing I want to talk about in kind of writing adjacent sort of thing, and, and this is probably a good time to talk about the fact that you're also a travel blogger. Because one of the questions I like to ask is, what's your opinion of using social media as a writer? And obviously mm -hmm. you use it in two very different ways because you have yeah. your blog and you're quite known for your uh, travels to do South America and you're going back to yeah. South America and following those stories are great. So in that regard, social media is quite essential. Yes. But in your epic fantasy, how do you find using social media? Is it a good promotion tool? Is it a good networking tool? How do you use Twitter and Instagram, like social media uh, for your writing? So I'm not, I, I, I think I could be better at social media, if I'm honest. I do have some presence now and it's growing slowly. But the first few years I was on Twitter, I didn't use it much because I wasn't really getting much out of it. But I think I, I eventually realized it's because my approach to it was wrong. Because my, my go-to for my social life and for social networking has been mostly Facebook. I've made a Twitter account because I thought like, oh, I need to do that because I'm an author now. And I'd only go on it to post stuff about books. And I felt like I was just shouting into the void because I get very little response. But then I realized that it, it, it's because I was approaching it the wrong way. Nobody wants to just see you talking about your or, or trying to promote your book all the time they want to know about you and that's when they get interested by you and so I started to use Twitter a bit more like in the way that I use Facebook and being and just being more sociable on it and I've actually discovered a, a mostly very nice book community through that and it's it, it is a steady progress I think Twitter's a bit harder to get into than Facebook because I don't think the algorithms favor new people as much mm. as Facebook does. It's harder to start getting enough engagement for it to be encouraging. But I think when I had Bloodsworn come out, I think, because that sold much better than my previous two books, that's when I started to have more engagement. And I started to feel, feel more encouraged and I started using it more. Mm. But yeah, I don't have the best social skills in the world. And I, 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 I am getting better at social media, but it's something that I need to work on because I do make some money off writing now, but mm. it's not enough to live off yet. Yeah. So I have to have a day job. And I pretty much do full-time hours writing now. And I work about 30 hours a week mm. for the day job. So it's sometimes I just don't have a, enough time for social media as I should do. Yeah. Um, yeah but you do socialize with like you said you know you found the writer community but you also go to uh, conventions you, you go to science fiction yes. and fantasy conventions and do you find that easier for engaging with the writing community than doing it online and social media and what's the pros and cons of face-to-face uh, -face interaction I, I mean, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, because I mean, as I mentioned at the start, I have uh, a, a bit of social anxiety. So I, I find like big events a bit overwhelming. And uh, that's why I, 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 I drink a lot when I'm at conventions. <laughs> and, I, and it's finally that sweet spot. So you've drunk enough to relax a bit, but not too much to be obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like it's, yeah, like a, a lot of the connections I have now uh, were through conventions. Mm. It was through conventions that I, I I got my novels published for Elsewhere Press in a way because I met an author called Douglas Thompson who's mm -hmm. a great author that people should read he was the one who recommended Elsewhere Press to me then I've met certain people who have become interested in my work and they read my book and then they've given me cover quotes for my books and that's helped um, a lot as well. In terms of how to engage with conventions I, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to ask about that question because I'm not like a a stealthy socializing person. I'm not somebody who will go into the bar and be like, this person is this editor and then home in on, on like, you know, I, I, I just go there usually a bit nervous. And then I, I talk to people that I, I vibe quite well with and I make friends gradually yeah. and it's all quite organic. Like I, I've, I sometimes wish that I was a bit more like that, but 
even if I tried to be like that, I don't think I'd be very good at it. <laughs> uh, well, the thing is, I think one of the nice like things about you is like one, how authentic you are, and like you say, it's, it's organic. And I think there's a lot of people that when they first go to a convention and they do uh, have ambitions with their writing of uh, getting either traditionally published or just trying to you know get more of a readership, it can sometimes be intimidating when you see oh, that's editor of so-and-so, or that's that you know, writer I've been reading since I was yeah. six. And it's just, gosh, how, how do I approach these? And to hear someone who's gone there felt exactly the same way, but then managed to meet a writer who gave them some advice that lent to a publishing deal, that now they have several books traditionally published, money coming in, a fan base that's growing and an audience that's growing because... Yeah, it wasn't the debut novel that's launched in massive success, but I think more people are becoming aware of you because, like you say, you're getting good reviews. You write really well. You write really compelling characters and really compelling stories. And it's a huge industry with like lots of writers, and sometimes you know, sort of very good writers can get lost in the noise. But if you have a belief in your writing, if you go to these events, if you go to enough of them over time, people will find you, people will recognize you, people will go, oh yeah, we've met before, how are yeah. you? And it's just, you can have success without being an overnight success. And yeah, yeah. I started going to conventions, I, I think it was like 12 years ago or something. So, and and I, and I there's still quite a lot of people I haven't met yet, because like I said, because the way that I make friends at them, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie and say like, I, I, I do go to conventions to network, but I also go there to just to meet like-minded people, make yeah. friends. And I, I probably haven't introduced myself to as many people as a lot of other people who have better social skills than me would have done as quickly, but it's, yeah, it's been a gradual thing. And, and like I said, I think because people, when they do actually meet me, can tell them I'm like that. And, it, and I'm not talking to them just because I want something from them mm. or... And uh, yeah, you, like I said, you're authentic. You, you are you and you are looking for people who are like-minded and like you say vibes, you know, just finding yeah. people of your tribe, which is the terminology I use. is to say, you know, yeah. you find people from your tribe and go, you see the world in the same way I do. <laughs> we should we shall get drunk together um also yeah for people who haven't been to conventions everyone drinks not that teetotal people aren't exempt but you just need to accept you'll be surrounded by drunk people but yes you want to be confident without being obnoxious yeah. that's the thing i struggle with when i'm sober uh so, <laughs> you know uh alcohol is diff uh, doubly challenging but yes it, you know, it definitely has been a, a a joy to meet you and through you discover your work so. It's um, a phenomenon that I've noticed that the convention hotels, because uh, I mean, Bristol Con, the one that, that me and you have met at, and yeah. it's always at the same hotel, but Fantasy Con and Easter Con, they move around the country quite a lot. But whenever it's at a new hotel, there's this thing that happens. The people who organise the convention say, have you got plenty of people on the bar? Because these people would drink a lot and they kind of sceptical. They're like, yeah, whatever. And then the first night, there's never enough people at the bar. And... Yeah, it's just like they just underestimate how much introverts will drink when they're trying to socialize. So I've, um, I've had this conversation with bar staff before, <laughs> and it's interesting. And they say there's a social stereotypes of rugby players that, oh, they're all big drinkers. And certainly at university, I remember it actually stopped me joining the rugby because I used to play rugby at school, went to university, saw the drinking culture. And I was like, you know what? I'm fine. So there's always this assumed drinking culture with rugby. But when you get to professional level and the athletes, they don't actually drink that much. And their body fat ratio is quite <laughs> low. So when they do drink, their tolerance is really low. So there's all this machismo. But once you get them all in the bar, two pints, then they're away. Writers, on the other hand, drink as part of their work. You know, if they're struggling, <laughs> you know, they will hit the bottle. When you know, A lot of their... Uh, social interactions are in the pub and like you say there's a lot of social awkwardness so they're drinking to build confidence and also <laughs> let's be honest a lot of uh, authors their body fat ratio is significantly higher than rugby players so they have the ability to absorb a lot and they also are actively using their minds so they're engaging in conversation and they're keeping sharp and because they have this mental acumen that they can really engage for a long period, no matter how many brain cells they're killing off at the same time, they can put away 
a lot more than you know, sort of other big social groups. And so, yeah, I had this sort of thing. It's like, oh, we used to have like extra bar staff when we'd have like big sports groups in. And then we found that they were wasted and we didn't need that many staff. We now have learnt with writers, you definitely need more staff. Yeah, they, they usually learn it by the second night. Yeah, like yeah. if it's night, a new they're... hotel, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, <laughs> it is something that if a hotel hasn't hosted writers before, it is quite comical how underprepared they are. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, on to my final two questions to wrap up. It's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. From your last book, which I know is Blood Legacy, it's just coming out, was there anything that you learnt through writing Blood Legacy that you're now applying to Blood Wars? I think in books two and three, I became a lot more aware of author expectations and okay. how I might be engaging with different books of the same genre. Because like we covered earlier, like Blood Sworn was a very claustrophobic novel, um, even though it was epic fantasy, like the main characters didn't really know much about their world and suddenly the plot takes this grim turn and they're just fighting for survival the whole yeah. time while being on the run and stuck together. Blood Legacy was where I kind of like, it was started to become more of a traditional epic fantasy novel because mm -hmm. the world opened up more because the characters got exposed to more of their world and there was more political intrigue. So I had to spend quite a lot of time like building up the world and making it more broad. And I also started to just realize that there's going to be certain expectations about how book three is going to go based on not just like how book one and two were, but how epic fantasy series go. Mm. But I can't really tell you about how I'm <laughs> going to engage with any of these yeah. things yet because it would be spoilers. But um, there's, I, I guess you've sort of, are you then working to go against expectations and subvert the tropes or is yeah. it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm always, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that's what people expect me to do yeah. as a writer now, but both from my first two books were, were mostly built around that. And yeah, my epic fantasy has been quite similar as yeah. well. So, um, I, so I guess if we're trying to put it in the abstract and not put any spoilers in, <laughs> if you've learned anything, it's identifying the tropes that yes. might be seen in the third book of a series that yeah. you're sort of going, that's what people expect. Don't do that. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, so you go, oh, because I did this in one and this in two, people expect this in three. So don't do that. Is that basically what you've learned through this yeah, process. I mean, I guess I guess I've always been doing that, but it was more subconscious before. Whereas now, because I, I think it's also because sometimes you don't realize what you do as a writer until you get reviewed, and then okay, the reviewers yeah. tell you, and then you're like, oh yeah, I have been doing that. Yeah, yeah, that that was what I was doing. I just didn't realize that was what I was doing all this time. Sometimes it's it, it can be subconscious, like with my first two novels, which I didn't plan at all. They were like just almost streams of consciousness yeah. and sometimes yeah I get struck by something and I'd write it didn't even realize they were novels at first they started off as short stories and I'd put these weird details in there and I'd be like why is that person carrying that thing around with them why did I put that in there and then nobody was more surprised than me when the the books came together at the end and like it all worked out and I was like oh so that's why I put there that those novels were just weird I'm gonna sound pretentious now but I felt like I was channeling something when I was writing yeah, yeah odd no, experience I think that that is definitely a shared experience amongst a, a certain number of writers where it's the ideas are coming from somewhere and it feels external um that's definitely yeah. something that some people find and but yeah the hidden symbolism that you're like oh yeah that was symbolic oh of, yeah yeah i yeah I, with, my, with my first because like i said with my epic fantasy novels i sometimes change little bits as i go on but my first two i i kept surprising myself but they were a bit of an, an anomaly for me so yeah strange experience <laughs> and my final question is there one piece of advice you've received or read or you know sort of come across that you find you return to when you're writing that you apply to your writing that you felt has always helped so one thing that I've definitely learned early on 
And I say to friends who want to get into writing, it's all about rewriting. Uh, I spend more time editing than I do writing my first draft. The first draft is usually for you. Yeah. The the edit the the editing is for other people. And some more specific advice that I would give to people who are particularly writing epic fantasy is to study history. Mm-hmm. History is so important when you're writing epic fantasy because even if you're not basing your society that you're creating off like a certain civilization for inspiration, a passive knowledge about history makes you understand mm. like how societies evolve, how they interact with each other and how inter- interconnected everything is. There's lots of free and accessible ways to get an education about history now. A lot of independent creators who make podcasts and YouTube videos. I mean, people are probably on their treadmills right now, <laughs> nodding their heads because they're listening to this. Yeah. You, can, you can educate yourself while you're walking, while you're exercising with podcasts. That's the brilliant thing about it. And, uh, and, uh, and one other piece of advice I also give people writing up fancy is you can draw a map. And if you've got enough knowledge about history and geography the map could almost write the story for you yeah because there's certain sort of patterns that always happen like you know civilizations always start in river valleys uh rivers and mountain ranges are natural borders that divide people if the resources aren't evenly distributed there's going to be conflict and warfare strategic points are going to be by strategic resources etc etc but yeah Learning about history is one of the best things you can do if you want to write epic fantasy. That's great. I think that's a perfect place to end. And uh, Ted, I'd just like to thank you very much uh, for being my guest this week. Okay, thank you. And that was the real writing process of Ted Turner. I hope you liked it. I think you really get a sense of how internally consistent his worlds are with that last bit. His books are very good. However, one thing I noticed when editing this interview was that I didn't push him on how he developed such well-rounded and believable characters. Now that's my failing, but I do want to tell you that his characterization is brilliant. If you get frustrated at characters doing illogical things or suddenly having a personality swap just for the sake of a contrived plot twist, then rest assured you don't get that in a Tej Turner novel. His characters are smart, distinctive and logical. And how he does that, I'll ask him next time. Now, I've left a link to his author profile in the show notes. Elsewhere Press has a lovely little bio about him and links to all his novels in ebook and standard publishing formats, as well as links to his social media and his travel blog. Now, am I posting one link out of laziness and convenience? Yes, but it's also easier for you as it's nicely laid out all on one page. So just before I sign off, I'd also like to thank my newest Kofi supporters, Arta Bialik and Becky Pepperdine. You are beautiful, wonderful humans, and your support in kind words and cold hard cash are really helping me do this. All Kofi supporters get early access to all episodes, and there'll hopefully be some exclusive bonus content after Easter, so keep an eye out for that. If you'd like to support the show, you can do either a one-off or monthly donation of £1 or more to become an official supporter. The link is also in the show notes. And that's everything from me this week. Thanks for listening, and may you always keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near until the world
seasons come and pass One after the last And along we go The shift and pull of the tides I have this